Okay, well, Colossians 2. This is Paul writing to uh, to the Colossians, and uh, it's quite clear that <clears throat> he's up against some sort of heresy which is going on here in uh, in Colossae. It's been called by some the the Colossian heresy because it's quite makes quite a fascinating exercise to read through what he's saying and to try to work back uh, and figure out. Uh, what exact heresy he's uh, he's trying to trying to target, but we don't want to concern ourselves too much with that. Uh, suffice it to say that it seems to have been some form of uh, Judaism, um, some sort of Judaistic missionaries maybe trying to get the Christians to to go back to the law, and also some kind of Gnosticism or let's say incipient Gnosticism. Um, for example, in verse 3 of our chapter, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The idea of hidden wisdom and hidden knowledge, this is very much the idea that um, was being come out with by, for, by uh, well, who would have been false teachers uh, in the first century, the idea that uh, hidden and superior wisdom is hidden uh, in secret writings that are known only to, to the chosen few, uh, etc. Uh, and Paul is saying, look, all true wisdom and knowledge is hidden, yes, but it's hidden in Christ. Uh, and it's not in some secret writings that you've got to climb a mountain to, uh, to find or hidden with some, some guru or some rabbi somewhere or other. Uh, and so against whatever's going on here, I think his whole theme in this letter, as in some of his other letters, is keep your eyes focused on the greatness and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ personally. And then all these other issues you will find are not going to distract you. So he's writing to people who were liable to be distracted. And he's saying, look, forget all that stuff. Focus upon the Lord Jesus. You just look at how many times he refers to Jesus uh, just in this chapter, either explicitly, if you just skim read it, uh, and look out every time the word Jesus Christ or the Lord, referring to Jesus, the Lord Jesus, uh, occurs, uh, you'll see that's in most verses. And actually, if you then read more carefully, you'll see that, in fact, pretty well every verse is mentioning Jesus by one form or title or another. So it's a great example, really, of a Christ-centered approach <clears throat> a Christ-centered approach it reminds me of how he, he writes to the Corinthians that I determined to know nothing amongst you uh, save Jesus Christ and him crucified but as far as Paul was concerned as he sort of faced off against the Corinthians he's saying look I come to you thinking only of Jesus that him there crucified on the cross that is my perspective and it's the same here in a slightly different way, that they had all these enticing words, as he says in verse 4, uh, around them, so many things to distract them, and he's saying, look, get back to Jesus. And as I say, in a number of his letters he does this. And I think he almost purposefully, in places, talks about the Lord Jesus in such highly exalted, even startling kind of terms in order to try to jolt their minds as to how great Jesus should be in their thinking and self-perception. Got an example here in verse 9. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
And now this doesn't mean that Jesus is God. And as the uh, idea, the false idea of the Trinity developed, unfortunately people who wanted to apologize for the Trinity grabbed hold of various uh, verses like that, where Paul is going on about the utter greatness and supremacy of Jesus uh, and misused them to try to make out that Jesus is God. But you've got to look at those verses in the context in which Paul wrote them under inspiration. Uh, and he wrote them in the context of trying to show that whatever is worrying you at this time, be it persecution, be it uh, distracting people who come with clever, clever arguments, be it division in the church, be it, as it was in Corinth, um, immorality, and the temptations to, to live the life of the world that was going on around them. Go to the idol temple and also go to the ecclesia, sleep with the prostitutes in the idol temple and then go to the broken of bread or even mix the two together. Whatever the whole thing was that, that was the problem, he keeps coming back to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our world, we maybe are not... Uh, distracted by Gnosticism or some sort of intellectual uh, philosophy or, or idea of going back to keeping the law of Moses, although I, I accept that there are some people who are caught up with uh, this kind of nonsense, but generally I think most of us don't find that kind of stuff uh, an item. We don't find it a real temptation. And yet, we live in a world that is full of distractions. You can waste hour after hour after hour messing around on the internet, playing around with Facebook, playing around with Wikipedia or whatever it is, these fascinating sites that, that take your time, that are not uh, wrong in themselves, not sinful in that sense in themselves, but there is so much information around in this information age in which we live, and we can't cope with it. We think we can. But actually we can't. We are not wired that way to be able to cope with so much information. How we are living in this world, in society as it is at the moment, is totally unnatural. It's a situation without precedent in, in human history before that ordinary men and women like you and me are exposed to such a huge amount of information, some of it very true as far as it stands, uh, and yet why do we need to know all this? Uh, and it's, it's a distraction. Now, in a different way, that's exactly what they were faced with here in Colossians, in Colossae, where he talks in verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you with philosophy and vain deceit, the tradition of man, etc., etc., because in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. So, he's saying, keep your mind centered on him, and don't let anything, be it Facebook, be it Jewish philosophy, be it Gnosticism, be it immorality as it, as it was in, in Corinth, don't let any of this stuff get near you, because your, your eyes should be blinded in that sense, by a man, by this Lord and Saviour Jesus. And he, he talks in verse 6, as you have therefore received, the AV says, Christ Jesus the Lord, but the Greek says, as you have received the Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. All the time he's emphasising the greatness of him as a person. Now, it would be true to say, I think, that our community has tended to be kingdom oriented 
all on about uh, the second coming and the kingdom of God coming on the earth. And they're very focused on the Bible. And there's nothing uh, wrong with that in itself. But I would like to suggest that the, the thrust of Christian life, of true Christian life, and the self-understanding of men and women like you and me who, who have been baptized into the Lord Jesus, our self-perception should be that we are in Christ. Our focus, I suggest, should be on Him. He is to be the light of our world in which we understand everything else. He is to be the core, the center. He is, if you like, uh, the one man whose personality cult we are willingly and eagerly uh, involved in. So then, if we can keep focused on him, this Christ-focused life, this will stop us from being distracted. And distraction, as I say, it seems to me that this is the, uh, the bane of, of our age in, in which we live. This sort of self-centeredness, this uh, egotistic, really, um, lazy, in another sense, way of life and way of being, is just developing absolutely without any precedent in human history. And all this distracts us. And what does it take us away from? It takes us away from him. And so he says, verse 6, As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Accepting him, not just at baptism, but in an ongoing sense, as your Lord. Now, because we, we've had so many disappointments in, in relationships and maybe involvement in politics and, and stuff like that, and, and we... We've come to the conclusion that really, uh, you know, what is man that, that put not your trust in princes, etc. We've been disappointed. People promise things, or in our own minds, we think that they may offer us this, that, and the other, and it never quite works out. And because of that, I think society has become more and more cynical, as they not only have these experiences themselves, which of course everyone has had throughout history, but as the media enables us to see how other people are disappointed. People get together, make a revolution, uh, overthrow one government, and then sooner or later there's going to be another one because that wasn't any good. Uh, and, and so the whole miserable story goes on. And that can lead us to, in a sense, retreat into ourselves and not want to get behind anybody, not have a relationship with anybody. And yet the whole essence of being in Christ is a relationship with him. It's not so much accepting a theology, that this point, that bullet point, and, and this point of theology or doctrine or whatever, yes, I can tick that point, I can tick that point, and I can tick that point, therefore I'm home and dry. I understand correctly about what happens when we die, the nature of Christ, um, how he's going to come again, how... Death is unconsciousness. There shall be a resurrection of the body, a judgment, kingdom on earth, etc. Uh, and therefore, I am okay. I'm not saying that all those things are not important, but the essence is to know him as a person. It is that which will keep you going. And it's that alone which will keep you from being distracted and, and blown away. Now, in verse 7, Colossians 2, verse 7, we are rooted and built up in him. 
He's using two uh, metaphors there, rooted, like a tree is rooted, and then building metaphor, built up in him. And uh, those two metaphors occur together in Ephesians 3.17, which is uh, clearly uh, a parallel passage, where Paul says that we are rooted and grounded, or foundationed, in love. But here in Colossians 2.7, we are rooted and built or grounded in Christ. But he says in Ephesians 3.17, pretty well, I would say, effectively in a parallel passage, we are rooted and grounded in love. Here in Colossians 2, rooted and, and grounded in him. Now, the point of the parallel, I think, is that if we are Christ-centered, then we become love-centered. But what does this mean? Um, to be Christ-centered. If we are thinking of him personally, just reflecting on things that he did in the Gospels, things he said, how he responded to situations, then this has a natural effect upon us. Love. And if we're honest in our self-examination, we will have come time and again to this question, how can I be more loving? I want to be more loving. I want to be more kind. Now, the source of a loving life, I don't think, is to be found in some kind of psychological gymnastics within our mind, sort of uh, having a steel will within us that makes us to be more loving rather than selfish. But I think the motive for love, the, the method of becoming more loving, the way to love, is to be focused upon him personally, rooted and grounded in love, in Ephesians 3, here in Colossians 2, rooted and grounded in him. So, in practical terms, I would suggest every day we should be reading something from the Gospels. Really, he has got to be the focus of our lives and our thinking. And pray to him. Talk to him. I, I mean, let all your requests be made known to God. Yes, Paul says that. But that does not preclude praying to Jesus. And of course, so many of our hymns are, and songs are, are prayers to Jesus. Um, carry that on in your prayer life. Be focused on him. How, you know, what was his body language when, for example, he was with the woman taken in adultery? What was his body language as he was uh, walking to the uh, ruler of the synagogue's house to, to heal his daughter and uh, all these people were thronging him and this woman who had a, an issue of blood for so many years, she wanted to be healed and then they came and said, ah, oh, don't bother, she's dead, the, the girl's gone, you know, that's too late. Yeah, what was his body language? Just things like that. Now, this is what I think being Christ-centred is about and I like that tradition which I, I mean, it's not a biblical tradition but one uh, reads about it but um, in the first century before they baptized people people had to recite the gospel of Mark out loud because the gospel is the gospel as in the gospel according to Mark, according to Matthew, according to Luke, according to John the gospel in its essence is Jesus, the good news is him Yes, that involves, of course, his coming again and his kingdom. 
I, I would even go so far as to say that in Acts 8.12, where we read about preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, that those things are not two groups of things. But they, I, I would argue that actually um, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ are parallel. Uh, we'll talk about that more uh, later, if you like. But um, I, I would say that the essence of the kingdom is Jesus. And Jesus, as a person, is the essence of the kingdom. That's why the kingdom of God is a title of Christ. You, you might remember in that passage in Luke where Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. Uh, or within you, as some versions say. Uh, they were looking around for Messiah. And he's saying, look, don't look here, don't look there. I'm telling you, you're looking right in Messiah's face. The kingdom of God is among you. He, as the king of that kingdom, as the essence of that kingdom, could have the title of the kingdom of God. That's why he says, look, you're looking for the kingdom of God to come. Look, I'm telling you, you're looking for Messiah. I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is right in front of you, talking to you. I am that kingdom. That's what he was saying, as I understand it. So then... Verse 9, Colossians 2, verse 9, or verse 8, verse 9. Beware lest any man spoil you after the tradition of men, and not after Christ, because in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's saying, if you are transfixed in your vision upon him, no man will as Revelation puts it, will take your crown. No man will distract you. In their context, it was people, men, distracting them through philosophy and vain deceit. But if we are awed by the Lord's exaltation, if truly we crown him as Lord in our hearts, not in theory, but in practice, hour by hour, we will not get caught up in personality cults around any other individual, neither will we be phased or distracted by men, by whatever they say. Now, in the, in the Colossians context, what they were saying was philosophy and vain deceit, and as I've said, that may not be the, the issues that, that, uh, that we face in our lives, but we certainly do tend to get upset and distracted by other people's words and their traditions. And... Uh, where they're trying to pull us to. But, no. Having warned them about that, he's, he then goes on to come out with this very exalted statement about Christ. Don't let those people spoil you, etc., etc. Carry you, you away with all their issues, because in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's an amazing statement. Um... The, the fullness of God. And I, I understand this as a reference back to Exodus 34, where um, Yahweh declares himself, or declares his name to Moses, and, and says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God full. And then uh, comes out with all the attributes of God. A God full of mercy. A God full of justice. A God full of grace. A God full of integrity. A God full of judgment of sin. And all that fullness of God is essentially his, his characteristics. 
And because the Lord Jesus was perfect in absolutely every way, in that sense, the whole fullness of God dwells in him. But then verse 10 goes on to to say something quite mind-blowing. And you are complete, or you are full, in him. Now, if we are baptized into Christ, we are in Christ, and he has baptism in view here, because in verse 12 and 13 he's talking about baptism. Um, If we are baptized into Christ, then all that is true of Christ becomes true of us. If in him there was all this fullness of God, then this is also true of us. That we become complete because of the fact we are in him. Verse 10. Now, this is so wonderful that whatever is going on in your life, in your ecclesia as it was there in Colossae, in in the town you live in, whatever, doesn't make any difference. This is mind-blowing. It's almost too good news to believe. How can all this be true of me? I who understand so little, I who am so unspiritual, that I am complete, I am perfect, I am full, because I am in him? How can this be? Well, it's a very similar sort of argument, really, in a, in a condensed form, uh, to what Paul is saying in Romans 1-8, to where... You know, he talks about imputed righteousness, that if we are baptized into Christ, then we are counted as if we are him, and all that is true of him becomes true of us. And he, he says in verse 11, that in him, and again, I understand this is a reference to our baptism into him, we are circumcised in the sense that the flesh and the sins of the flesh has been cut off by the circumcision of Christ, by the circumcision which he performs on us, the cutting off. Buried with him in baptism, verse 12, risen with him through faith of the operation of God. So then, what is all this saying? I think it's saying that When we're baptized, we change status. We now become in Christ, all that's true of him becomes true of us, and that is the means by which it is as if the flesh is cut off from us. Now, this does not, of course, mean that we are not still in the flesh. This is, uh, as I say, a summary almost. It could be almost consciously a summary of what's written in, in Romans. Um, you know, this is why Paul sticks Romans 7 in between Romans 6 talking about baptism and Romans 8 where he's rejoicing in, in salvation. He puts Romans 7 in there where he, he's lamenting his own flesh uh, where he says, I, I just can't, can't seem to be good as I would like to because of the flesh. I am still in the flesh. I still got it and I'm still sinning. But then... Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And all that is true of him, therefore, becomes true of us. Now, this is almost too good news to believe. But in this status that we have in Christ, we are seen as if the body of the sins of the flesh has been cut off. The, The flesh has been cut off. 
It's no longer there. It is not part of us anymore, in the sense that God does not look at us now as if we are attached to that flesh. He looks at us as if we are Jesus. You know, verse 13, You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has quickened, he has resurrected together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses and blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, just contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, these are um, all legal words against us, uh, contrary to us. This is you, these are legal words um, about an adversary, an opponent at law, someone who is legally against you, who is contrary to you in court. But he, Paul says, that all this has been taken out of the way. And uh, that, that Greek term for taken out of the way in, in Greek literally means to, to take away from the foreground. That something that was in the middle, that was in the foreground, is suddenly taken away. Uh, and again, it's as if our accusers there in court, who quite rightly are saying, look, this is, I'm the law of God, and you broke it time and time and time again. Suddenly they are whisked away. And this is the very same image that Paul uses so powerfully in Romans 8, where he says, well, where is our accuser? There is now no condemnation. There is now no one to accuse us. It is Christ who has declared us right, who has justified us. And uh, who is he that condemns? Where is he that condemns, Paul says in Romans 8? But they're out of court. They suddenly ran out of the courtroom. And we're left with Jesus as the counsel for the defense, God as the judge of all. And so we are declared right. Now, you can just accept that as it is, because that's what Paul says, and that's what God says, and that's how it is. Or you can start to ask about the mechanics, as it were, of how that happens. And, you know, he, he explains that here, um, that this happened because of what happened on the cross. Verse 14, that all this was nailed to the cross. All that which was legally against us, that was contrary to us, that was accusatory against us. He says, verse 14, it was blotted out, or the Greek word means it was washed out. And it's definitely an allusion to baptism. Um, but what he did there on the cross became true for us by our baptism into his death. And he made a show of them, verse 15, openly. Now, this is uh, the same word in Hebrews 6, verse 6, where it talks about putting Christ to an open shame by crucifying him again. So, this is reminiscent of crucifixion language. So there, in the eyes of men, Jesus in naked shame, and uh, the, the idea of him being put to an open or a naked shame, in Hebrews 6, verse 6, I, I think... Uh, lends weight to the idea that he, he was crucified naked. They, they wanted to humiliate him to the absolute maximum. 
Um, and yet, from God's point of view, although it was the uh, the nadir, as it were, the the low the lowest of the low points that it could be in in human eyes, this was defeat, absolute and total defeat and humiliation. Yet in in God's eyes, from the spiritual perspective, this was absolute open triumph um, over sin and everything that could lead uh, that could convict us of sin. That it was taken out of the way. So you see, he's not only saying that ah, yeah, you know, the law of Moses was taken out of the way when Jesus died. Um, he, he's, I think, going further than that uh, and saying that you know, verse thirteen that. Uh, he forgave you all trespasses and the mechanism if, if I may use that word uh, that, that he, he chose to do that was that all law including the law of Moses um, was in that sense taken out of the way and we were washed from this and thereby uh, 14 was washed away or washed out or blotted out the, uh, the ordinances that were against us that we just can't seem to to keep. That all all law, all legality, was taken away. Now we might think, well, uh, wait a minute. There must be a catch. It can't simply be that that you just get baptized and you believe it all and you shall be saved, even though you still got the flesh and, as Paul says, you know, you still keep on sinning. But that we definitely will be saved, won't we? Well, there must be a catch. And you know, there isn't. It is as simple as that. If you can believe it. And that is, if you want to look at it this way, that is the catch. That it is so simple. And we have something within us that, that is human pride, I suppose, that doesn't want to just accept God's grace for free that wants to sort of try to justify ourselves and therefore because we can't do that we, we start to realize that oh no I've got all these sins oh I don't know if I shall be in the kingdom or not but the bottom line is that yes we shall fear not little flock for it's your father's good pleasure to give you that kingdom uh, that we have been washed uh, and justified in Christ we have been, we have been forgiven verse 13, all trespasses, and therefore we shall be saved. It is as simple as that. Now, if you believe that, and okay, maybe you could say, here comes the catch. Um, if you really believe that, this has to affect your way of life. But not in the sense that uh, you will steal your will to be good, and not to do bad things and all the rest of it. No, that, not in that sense. But if you really believe this, that all my trespasses have been forgiven, I am now not in a status, in a position, whereby uh, I have a set of laws to keep, and if I don't keep them, then I'm, I'm done for, and if I do keep them, then I shall be saved. I am not in that position. All that has been taken right out of the way, I've been washed from that. It was nailed to the cross. There, all my trespasses, verse 13, were forgiven. I cannot be passive to that wonderful thing. It's not that, oh, well, I'd better be responsive. No. Quite naturally, 
you become responsive. Quite naturally, that sense of, wow, I shall live forever, I will be saved. Quite naturally, that sense of, wow, doesn't just stay there. It leads to something in practice. That wow feeling has to find its outlet in, in some some kind of practice. It, it has to. It, it must do. It, it's quite normal. It's quite natural. That, that sense of, wow, thank you. What can I do? Not what can I do so as to be saved, because your whole sense of wow is that, wow, I am saved. But quite naturally, well, what can I do in response to that? You see what I'm saying? You don't think, wow, that's pretty cool. Now, what can I do so that I can be saved? No, no, no. You have been saved. And yeah, I recognize that we can kick it all away, we can uh, walk out into the darkness uh, tonight. Uh, yeah, I accept that. But I'm talking about situations as it is right now, as of this moment in, in time. Because we, you know, as Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow take care for the things of itself. But we're, we're talking about today. We're living in the present, not in possible futures. We're living in the present. And uh, the question is, so if the Lord comes now, or if I should collapse and die this moment will I be saved and the answer is yes if you are in Christ and he has forgiven you all trespasses that is your status the flesh has been cut off from God's perspective as he looks at you and it's not how you feel about yourself it's how he thinks about you which is important and we have been washed. We are part of Christ. We are risen with him in prospect already. And we shall be saved. Now, as I say, if, that, if you let yourself, if you let yourself believe it, if you let go of all that sort of constipation, I wanted to say, of, of all the, the, the breaks that come on in our mind. Stop, stop, stop. Slow down. Just, just wait a minute. It's not that simple. Now, if you let go of all that and say, yeah, this is for, for real. I will be saved. I am saved. I have risen with Christ. Uh, you naturally, well, you have to say, what can I do? Not what can I do to be saved, because we have the whole sense of wow is because we have been saved. But the question is, what can I do? And he, he makes a, a, a very telling point, I, I think, in verse 18, where he, he goes on um, to say that, that all the, this sort of Jewish idea or Gnostic idea, whatever, mainly Jewish idea, I guess, of uh, doing good deeds so as to be saved, he says this is a result of the fleshly mind. And the whole Jewish idea was, no, 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 no. Uh, keep the law. Do what God has said in, in uh, the handwriting of, of ordinances, um, and that will stop you 
indulging the flesh. This is to this day. This is Judaism's big point that uh, obedience to, to to the letter of God's law, uh, any divine law or whatever dispensation you're living in, um, is necessary in order to to curb the flesh. And yet Paul is actually saying that by doing that and having that mentality, that is the fleshly mind. And at the end of verse 23, I think he sums up his whole argument here. He talks about all these things, touch not, taste not, handle not, verse 21. These things appear to have uh, some uh, appearance of, of wisdom and sort of external religion. They appear to be uh, a form of humility. But, and this is the clinch point, it's a shame the translation is messed in the, uh, in the King James, uh, the clinch point at the end of verse 23 is that None of that stuff is of any help in overcoming the flesh. Any idea of steel-willed obedience to a set of laws or principles or whatever will not result in our overcoming of the flesh. It's the very opposite of what Judaism taught and teaches and it's the very opposite of what we naturally would prefer to think. You understand why people thought that Paul was heretical and why people misunderstand him because what he's saying is uh, hard to get your mind round because it's too good to believe. That it's not about obedience. It is about <clears throat> faith in your status as a man or woman in Christ. That the flesh has been cut off from you. And it was Jesus who cut that off by the circumcision of Christ. In him, verse 11, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That the flesh that you so fear, that I so fear, my own flesh, your flesh, our sins, fleshly behavior, it's all been cut off. It is no more. God does not look at us as if that's part of us anymore. Romans 7, I know, it's in between Romans 6 and Romans 8. Just to remind us that, sure, of course, we hate the fact that we, in that sense, are still in the flesh. But the whole point is that by status we are in Christ. And all the fullness of God, the perfection of God's moral character, which dwelt in him, dwells in us. Let's just go back to verse 9 and 10 and clinch that, because that's where we started on this train of thought from. In him, in Christ, dwells all the completeness, the fullness of the Godhead. And I suggested the fullness of God is his character, is his moral excellence, and that dwelt in Christ as a person. And you are full or complete in him. But all that fullness of God that dwelt in Christ, in that sense dwells in us. And again the point is even clinched within verse 9. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. But most times that Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's not talking about the physical body, the, the, the fleshly body that had toenails and uh, a nose and uh, hair uh, and this, this kind of thing. Um, he, he understands the body of Christ to be us. That by one spirit we were baptized, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, into one body. 
the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ, Paul says. So then the body of Christ is him, is us, who are baptised into him. We are him and he is us, in that sense. And therefore we are complete, are full in him, because if we are in him, well, in him as a person, all the moral perfection of God dwells. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I are good blokes or good people or whatever of ourselves. The whole point is that we are counted as if we are him because we were baptised into him. Now, I hope you understand, therefore, why, uh, this is my honest understanding, uh, why, really, I think we should be persuading people as strongly as we can to be baptised into Jesus. You know, pop the question to people. Why don't you get baptised into Jesus? If you've got to, you know, make a big sacrifice of travel or, or whatever, sacrifice of effort to get someone baptised into Christ, do it. Even if, like, if you baptise that person, they are going to think badly of you, and they might even disfellowship you. Okay, so, so be it, let them do it. The point is, that person who is baptised stands related to God in this wonderful way. It's absolutely mind-blowing. It really is. And you know, the whole paradox is that steel-willed obedience is not of any assistance at all in overcoming the flesh. What helps overcome the flesh? By believing that actually the flesh has been cut off and that God is looking at us as if we are the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, we're thinking about the breaking of bread. Um, this is the, the profound fact that he there, that the body of Jesus hanging on a tree trunk 2,000 years ago, on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, on a hill just outside Jerusalem in Israel, that this affects you and me, that it affects me tonight and it affects me tomorrow morning and it affects you and you and you and all of us and it, it doesn't affect us just a little bit it transforms us it has to you see that connection between him hanging there and you today that he carrying as it were all our sin, all our dysfunction overcame and put it to death cut it off and gloried over it in, in a an open well, verse 15 he made a show of them openly all that sin all that law that we could not keep and I don't just mean the law of Moses I mean the law in the sense of legality without the, the, the article not the law but any sense of law he took the whole thing out of the way. 
He triumphed over it. And let's try and enter into that triumph and go with him.